0: Hello
1: and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chirpus. Today, a close look at the history of one of our most important food plants, maize, or corn, if you're in North America. Maize is a grass, but it looks so different from most other grasses, that for a long time botanists had no idea what its closest wild relatives were. And, though it's now indelibly associated with Mexico and the Americas, as late as the 1950s, some botanists couldn't even agree on which continent it came from. Slowly it became clear that maize was first domesticated in Mexico from a wild relative called Teosinte. Some of the evidence for that comes from studies of the DNA, which carries a trace of the various changes that have taken place over time. But that DNA also revealed plenty of anomalies, like the presence of other ancestors in addition to that first domesticated teosinte. It's all very confusing, but a new research paper published just last week in Science offers some clarity, and in search of even more clarity I got in touch with one of the paper's lead authors.
0: My name is Jeffrey Rossi Barra. I'm an evolutionary geneticist uh, at University of California, Davis, um, and have a bit of a background in ethnobotany, uh, and my research group works predominantly on the evolution of maize and its wild relatives.
1: Now one of the reasons it was so hard to identify the wild relatives that maize might have evolved from is that they look very different. It's really hard to imagine how teosinte could turn into maize.
0: When they're they're small they look very similar, but um, at maturity they they do look pretty different. Um, So teosinte tends to have branches and tends to have many stalks coming from the base. Um, So it looks uh, a bit more bushier than a a typical corn plant will. Um, And in uh, teosinte, the branches end in a male inflorescence. So that's the the tassel that makes pollen. Um, And in maize, that that lateral branch has been shortened, um, super, super short. And instead of ending in a, a male inflorescence, it ends in an ear, which is why the ears come off the side of the plant. So we've had a switch from a male to a female in fluorescence. Um, but the, the biggest difference is really the ear. So, you know, we're familiar with what a, an ear of corn or maize looks like. And you've got several hundred kernels all together on a single cob and they're um, uncovered. So there's no covering of them. And then there's a sort of a husk around them. Um, in teosinte, the ear, you, first you don't have one or two ears per plant like you typically do in maize. You'll have hundreds um, and each ear has maybe six to twelve kernels on it uh, in a in a single row, um, and those kernels first are covered in a hard fruit case. So there's this sort of um, hardened shell around the kernel, and the kernels aren't attached to a cob. So at maturity, they fall off the plant and just sort of scatter to the ground. And when you if you manage to open up that kernel, which you you know you can break a tooth doing it's it's really rock solid. Uh, um, inside the kernel is much smaller than a kernel you'd see in in maize. Um, so those are, you know, the overall plant structure and the, the differences in the ear are really the, the really big differences.
1: So without going into the kind of genetic differences behind that, what's what's the standard story of of how teosinte became maize?
0: Well, one of one of the neat things, uh, and it's either embarrassing or exciting, depending on how you look at it, uh, and uh, especially relevant for, for thinking about maize as food, is we don't actually know why maize was domesticated. I mean, clearly it was domesticated for food, but it's not clear that it was domesticated as a grain crop. Uh, it may have been domesticated for the grains and kernels, but it's hard to imagine, or it's it certainly imagining trying to use teosinte to make uh, flour or to use it as a grain is a it's really painful grinding those things and they're not a particularly efficient way of getting um, grain another possibility is that it was used for popcorn because you can take two synthet kernels and throw them in the fire and they'll pop open and you'll and you'll get popcorn just very similar to you to to popcorn you know you buy in a movie theater and the third possibility is that it was actually domesticated um or initially used at least because of the sort of sugar-rich stem and that you could ferment this stem and make fermented beverages from it. Mm. Um, and certainly some of the evidence from, uh, from human bone, uh, from archaeological uh, excavations of, of skele- human skeletons across America suggests that uh, for a long time, maize wasn't an important part of people's diet. Uh, and the majority or uh, quite a bit of the use of maize was as a fermented beverage. That sort of mystery of why it was domesticated, we still don't know. Um, and then there's the question of where it came from and how and how it was domesticated. Uh, and for much of the 20th century, the model was a sort of strange one that suggested because there was evidence of hybridization in the archaeological record, if you look at cobs, there seems to be evidence of Mixture or a hybridization in the archaeological record, there was this model that you had two different species come together and hybridize, some perennial grass and some extinct maize hybridized together, and that gave rise to both modern maize and teosinte. But the most common model now, for the past say, 20 years or so, was one that maize really domesticated, was domesticated a single time from teosinte. So some ancestral plant that looked a lot like modern teosinte. Gave rise to to modern maize.
1: And um, what's wrong with that story that an ancestral plant like teosinte gave rise to modern maize?
0: So it, it's not wrong, um, but our current paper suggests it's a bit too simple in the sense that the genetic data support that idea that maize was originally domesticated from a wild teosinte that grows in the lowlands of southwest Mexico, but. Over the last 10 years, in a number of studies, and when we were looking at how maize is adapted to different environments across Americas, we kept finding evidence of genetic contributions from a second teosinte. So there are multiple teosinte is a general term to refer to all of the wild grasses related to maize. And we kept finding evidence of contribution from a second teosinte that grows in the mountains of central Mexico. Um, really odd thing to us is that we found evidence of, of contribution from that teosinte, not just in maize from the mountains of Mexico, but in ancient maize from the southwest US and in maize as far south as the Andes, thousands of kilometers away from any teosinte plant. And so that sort of puzzle of evidence of uh, genetic contributions from a second teosinte made us. Suspect that maybe this initial model of a single simple domestication was was uh, oversimplified so then
1: how did how did you go about? You mentioned that you looked in the DNA and, and found evidence of this other teosinte, but how did you go about investigating the problem for this latest paper?
0: The idea actually started almost thirteen years ago with the in in reading the literature and and seeing. And, and this, the evidence of this simple model of a single domestication, where they pointed out that if you look genetically, the maize that looked most similar to Teosinte is maize that grew in the mountains of central Mexico, where this lowland Teosinte doesn't grow. And so that didn't make sense with the ecology or the archaeology or anything else. And from there, um, had a series of papers looking at at genetic contributions of the second teosinth in the highlands, and really, what started this paper was a couple of years ago in thinking about how maize adapted to the Andes. We found that some of the adaptation some of the way that the genetics that maize used to or that indigenous farmers used to sort of breed maize and improve maize to adapt it to the Andes involved genes from highlands of central Mexico. And so what we did in this paper was say, well, we've always been sort of assuming that this previous model was correct. And so let's take a step back and ask if we just look at all maize everywhere uh, and as much maize as we can get our hands on. And we do the really sort of simple question of if we treat each maize plant, say how much of its DNA came from this one teosinte and how much of its DNA came from this other Tiosynthae, which sort of nobody had done that sort of obvious thing before. Um, When we just did that for as much maize as we could get our hands on. And the surprising thing we found was that every single maize plant we looked at, um, every genome, all the DNA that we looked at had a meaningful contribution of this second teosinte, which was what really got us started in thinking about our new model and the contributions of the second teosinte. So you
1: you can kind of tell when things happened also from the number of changes in the DNA. So does this give you a a kind of clearer story of of what maize domestication might have looked like?
0: I think if anything it complicates the story. Um, (laughs) We can tell from the genetic and archaeological data that this hybridization event happened about 6,000 years ago. Uh, And We know from earlier archaeological data that maize domestication, maize was domesticated as early as 9,000 years ago. So we had this initial domestication of maize. um, And the archaeological data is really clear that it it spread across the Americas um, after that. And so we have these beautiful archaeological samples of um, maize in Peru that's 6,000 years old. And it looks like, you know, a modern corn cob. It's, it doesn't look like teosinte. It's clearly a domesticated corn that was in South America 6,000 years ago. And so that must have gotten there before this hybridization event. Uh, and in fact, when we look at its DNA, it doesn't show evidence of, of contribution from the second teosinte. So we already had something that was a domesticated corn, but then we had this hybridization event in in the highlands and the mountains of central Mexico. And that somehow made a a better corn that spread back across the Americas, mixing with or replacing corn everywhere else. And so, I think it actually complicates the story because it leads to a bunch of questions of why the heck is this second corn, uh, this this hybrid, this hybrid corn, better? Or you know, what is this second teosinte contributing to the story?
1: Well, that was <laughs> that was going to be my next question: Is how did the presence of these extra genes from the Highland teosinte how did they benefit the people who were growing the maize?
0: Yeah, that that's a great question, and the short answer is we still don't know. Um, my uh, when we first sort of saw these results suggesting a contribution of second of the second Highland teosinte to all maize, uh, I had the it seemed really obvious to me that what we would see is that the genes that we know are important for distinguishing, for making maize different from teosinte. So over many, many years, people have done lots of really beautiful genetic work to identify a number of the genes. And in some cases, we know the specific change of the DNA that, that allowed differences in say this branching architecture, or we know the genetic basis of, the genes that allowed sort of the the kernel to be uncovered by this from this fruit case, and I sort of had the idea that we would look and we would see that these sort of key genes were the ones that were contributed from the second tier day and that would you know be the the smoking gun, and that would would show why this was so important. And that's not at all the case. <laughs> um, so we don't see any evidence that these sort of obvious key domestication genes were were brought in from the second tier day and we, we do some sort of statistical genetic work in the paper and identify a set of genes that look like they were selected by um, early indigenous farmers. And some of those make some sense, but none of those is a smoking gun. So, you know, we find one example of a gene that is important in photo period. So if you take corn from um, the tropics or Teosinte and you try to grow it as far north here as Davis, for example, planted in March and it won't flower until November and then gets killed by the frost because maize in the tropics requires um, short day conditions. And if you grow it in long day conditions, it gets confused and won't flower. Mm -hmm. And this gene sort of modulates that um, and allows maize to adapt and figure out when to flower even in long day conditions. So we have some examples like that of a gene that makes sense. But it's not obvious that that gene alone or the the few that we identify alone are sufficient to explain the sort of clear advantage that this hybrid seemed to have had. The the other suspicion or the other explanation that we have is one of sort of hybrid vigor, that it may be the case that this initial domesticated maize was not particularly reliable, was had a bunch of sort of bad alleles that it accumulated because of small population size and, and going through a bottleneck and that really that this hybridization with second teosyntae brought in a whole bunch of new genetic variation. And so it may have been that it contributed to allowing early farmers to select um, a little bit better and more efficiently on a lot of different traits. And we provide some evidence in the paper that that, 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 that may be the case.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's interesting that you've got this map in your paper of the frequency of genes from teosinte uh, the Highland Teosinte, and then they seem to be much more common north and south of the original center of domestication what do, What do you think that means
0: so some of that I think is um, latitudinal ad- adaptation, so at higher latitudes, you both have shorter days, um, and so you have to have these have this adaptation to short day or excuse me not shorter days, shorter growing season. So you have to um, flower earlier. You also have longer days. So you have to adapt to this photo period difference that I talked about. And you also have colder climates. And all of those things are differences between the lowlands and the highlands of central Mexico. So if you look at this highland Teosinte, it flowers earlier because it has a short, shorter growing season in cold, high elevation conditions. And it has to germinate and flower at a different time of the year. So it has a slightly shifted photo period. And it has a bunch of adaptations for cold. And so I suspect that the, um, those sort of highland-lowland differences within Mexico and between those two teosintes are part of the reason why you see that enrichment of uh, highland teosinte alleles at higher latitudes, both north and south.
1: You you mentioned right at the outset a couple of things. One is this, um, this huge change from having a, a male flower, flowers, uh, at the end of every branch to having the single male tassel and the very reduced um stalk on which the ear sits and am i right that that i think i remember hearing a lecture that that that, that only probably only ever happened once in the history of maize um is that right
0: yeah i think that um probably most of those initial changes um, probably did happen once. Um, but I think it, it is, it is worth, uh, asking maybe what we mean when we say it happened once. I, I don't think anybody would claim that it happened, you know, on a Tuesday in one particular farmer's backyard. <laughs> uh, but that, uh, it was, you know, one, perhaps one genetic change that was selected in one region, and it wasn't sort of two totally independent things that happened at two totally independent times, but probably lots of different indigenous groups within the same region.
1: Yeah, but, but, I mean, you 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 said before at the outset, you said there are these three different ideas of of why Teosinte was being grown, um, you know, that maybe it was for popcorn, maybe it was for maybe it was for grain probably unlikely and this this idea that people were growing it for the sweet stalks a bit like sugarcane almost um it it does kind of boggle the imagination that somebody noticed in their tea of syntha. they must have been uh, that they noticed these changes and said mm, this is interesting maybe we should um take more interest in these i, I just find it astonishing
0: I, I totally agree and and I think that's why I say it's both exhilarating because we don't know, and that you know as a scientist that's fun because it means that there's lots to think about and uh, and a lot more work to do, but it's also a little bit embarrassing for a crop that we know so much about that is such an important crop that I can't even really tell you why people were growing it initially <laughs> um, I think you know the the there certainly is good evidence that it was being used as um uh, for fermentation um, people you can still find today um, people that will chew the stalks of um because they're sort of sweet you can still find maize being used to make fermented beverages so we know that those things um, occur today and um, we can use isotope data from bones to ask whether maize was being used as a fermented, uh, whether the carbon people were getting from maize came from being fermented or from eating the grain. So there, there's certainly evidence that it was happening, but we don't know that that means that that was why it was initially selected. And even, as you say, even if that's why, it's it sort of, it's still hard for me to imagine how somebody had a field of teosinte or was uh collecting stocks from a field of teosinte, and then how you go from there to um, developing an ear of of modern corn Um, yeah the the process still is uh fascinating and mysterious to me which is kind of cool can you
1: imagine ever finding an answer to that question what would it take
0: um i think we can you know i don't know if we, we can get a definitive answer but but for some of this, I think we can, I think we're, we're working towards partial answers. So for example, for many of the genes that we know are important for distinguishing maize from teosinte, we can look to ask, were those genetic variants already sort of hanging out in teosinte? Were they already segregating in natural populations? Or were they things that sort of arose de novo accidentally in some farmer's field after people were we're selecting on on Tiocente. And by and large, for essentially, almost every variant that we all, all of the genetic variants that we know, um, we can show that almost all of them, um, or maybe all of them were already segregating in Tiocente. So you can find Tiocente plants that have the, the maize allele, the, you know the maize genetic variant at in each of these loci suggesting that a lot of that genetic variation was already hanging out in teosinte, mm. And that I think means it, it's a lot more plausible to think, you know, it's not that early farmers were waiting around for a magical mutation uh, to happen, but that many of those genetic variations were already in the populations. Um, and that makes it a little bit easier. The other thing that's really interesting um, is that if you grow teosinte in stressed conditions, if you if you just sort of stress the plant out, um, it kind of starts to grow like maize. Hmm. And so you can see examples of stressed teosinte where the fruit case opens a little bit. And in stressed teosinte, it tends not to make branches, it'll just have a single central stock. And so it may be a combination of the, the right conditions and the right genetic variation in the teosinte populations began to make things that an early farmer, you know, thought were useful or, or were useful to early farmers
1: and And talking of stress, a final question does 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 this research have anything to say to future adaptations of of modern maize so that it can cope with things like climate emergency
0: yeah i I think it does um i think I would argue that it it sort of highlights that uh the potential useful contributions of wild relatives. We know for many, many different crops that there are close wild relatives that have over thousands and thousands of years adapted to different climatic conditions. And I would argue that this is additional evidence or or supports the idea that uh, genetic variation from those wild relatives can be useful for breeding um, and can be useful for breeding for novel environments. How you go about doing that, it's it's not easy. If you ask a a modern day corn breeder to uh, cross in or breed some teosinte into their population, um, they will not be happy about the idea. Uh, Because if you just try crossing a teosinte with maize, you get something that is not going to be as reliable. It won't have as high yield. It will be more variable. It would basically be much 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 worse and much lower yielding than a modern hybrid corn. And so really the trick is how do you figure out what are the useful genetic variants and how do we bring those into modern crops without bringing in sort of all that baggage that that breeders over thousands of years, indigenous farmers and and breeders have done such a good job of sort of cleaning up or, or changing.
1: Jeffrey Ross Ibarra. I'll put a link to the science paper which has a great summary for non-specialists in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating or tell a friend. I must say, I quite like the idea that a knowledge of the 9,000-year history of maize could also help us adapt maize to our needs over the next 90 years. And there's also that rather wonderful question of who domesticated whom. Modern maize is grown all over the world, something wild teosinte could never have achieved on its own. But modern maize is also absolutely dependent on humans, to separate the seeds from the ear, to sow them in the ground, to harvest the ears and ultimately to spread the species around the world. So did we domesticate teosinte to provide us with food and drink? Or did teosinte? take advantage of our hunger or thirst to achieve world domination I'll leave you with that puzzle. From now from me, Jeremy Chirpus and Hate This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening